The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the second wine edition of Slate Money. Um, as I as last time, uh, we have given up this week on even pretending to cover the business and finance news of the week. <laughs> and instead, we are going to get sloshed. Um, Jordan Weissman. Hey, hey you, everyone. You were here last time. Now, um, this is the sequel. This is the this is the Wine Edition 2. Wine Edition 1 was episode 60, I believe. It's a, it's a fondly remembered, cherished episode. It was a good... It, we, we recorded it on the 4th of July. I, we had Carl Storchman as the guest. I, I believe Felix like, ra- like wax rhapsodical about the, the virtues of brosé during that episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we got to hear about his scatterplot parties, yeah. which sounded my, like My scatterplot parties. And we also, because I was just listening to it to remind myself of what we have already covered in the world of wine um we also talked about the utility of a 1959 chateau lafitte in terms of getting strippers into bed mm. <laughs> Jesus. I need to words of wisdom <laughs> okay. so um but bianca bosca um is also is is the is the is filling carl storchman's seat right now she's much better than Carl is at know. many, many things. <laughs> um, what's your What's your story, Bianca, and why are you here to talk about wine? So I'm the author of a book called Cork Dork, which is um, my new book. Um, and I basically, I guess I'm here um, because I quit my job as the executive tech editor at the Huffington Post, got a job as a lowly seller rat, and started training to become a sommelier. So now I'm here to talk and about you, wine. And are you, are you in the industry still? So I'm a certified sommelier. I'm a card-carrying sommelier. I can, you know, you can decant recommend- wine with a license. But um, I'm not currently working on the floor, no. Okay, so so we are going to cover something which we didn't really cover in the first wine episode, which is the whole question of sommeliers and restaurants. And that's a whole level of wine which is fascinating to me. Um, we are also going to do something else which we didn't cover, which we didn't do in the first wine episode, which is we are going to drink our wines blind. I spent about half an hour in, of the first wine episode railing against the insane practice of blind tasting and how completely stupid it is and no one should ever do it. And so that's why we're doing it this time. <laughs> I'd also say, though, that there is, I mean, as a liberal arts major, I can justify just about anything, but I think there's definitely a an, an money and economics angle to this. I mean, we think about ordering wine, the business of wine, you know, wine is really the thing that helps keeps restaurants afloat, right? I mean, so I think- So we are so definitely going to talk topic. about that. You, yeah. had, you had maybe, your book has one of my favorite descriptions of the economics of wine I've ever seen. It was oh, like one line. You. We'll get to it. Well, what, what's the <laughs> yeah. line? We may so have to just it's jump where in. you were saying basically wine is a progressive tax on restaurant patrons and the food is basically like kind of your basic like payroll tax. So that's right. like what everyone <laughs> pays. And then how much you spend on wine is kind of where you are going, is how much you are actually going to contribute to the funding of this establishment. And so rich people who can blow $1,000 on a bottle pay more in wine tax than the, you know, low, than when I show up at a, you know, three-star Michelin restaurant yeah. and basically paying like the minimum, the, you know, at whatever I can afford. Right. I thought that was like a perfect way to describe it. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. You're my new favorite person. Yeah, no, it, it is. <laughs> and and I, I have to jump in as well and just say Bianca's book is called Cork Dork. It's available in all good bookstores and it's excellent and it's a really fun read and so go read it you will learn a lot about wine and we are because this is late money going to be talking about the economics of wine we are going to revisit that perennial question about price versus quality and whether there's any correlation between the two um we did cover it in some depth last time so we're not going to have exactly the same conversation but we really can't do any of this without drinking yeah Yep. So we've all brought wine. Mm-hmm. I, I brought one bottle. Bianca, of course, being a cork dog, brought two. Um, I feel like we should start with Bianca's white. Okay. So because you brought a red and a white, right? I did, yeah. So, like, I think we should also do – something tells me we should do my red and your red close to each other. Okay. So that's the plan. We're yeah. going to do your white followed by Jordan's white followed by my red followed by your red. All right. Okay. But let's start with your white. 
please. So this is one of the things you talk about early in the book is that there is an art to spitting. Yes. I never felt so self-conscious about my inability to do the basics of as reading that sentence. Good. Well, you're about to feel much more self-conscious because I'm about to judge you. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm just going to swallow. <laughs> no, no. Spitting wine, it's wonderful. When you see like wine tasters go and... You know, there's this beautiful clear stream which goes like uh, three yards and yeah. like lands exactly where it's meant to land. You're it's like, it's like one of those Belgian fountains. It's, yeah. the, it's the wine tasting equivalent <laughs> of those chip riffing trip tricks which poker players oh, do. Yeah, that's a good and analogy. you're like, oh, you've just done this so much that you can do it effortlessly yeah. and perfectly. Well, when I was at La Pole, which is this big Burgundy bacchanal, I mean, it is literally an orgy for wine. That's how I found this guy that became sort of my guide to it because I was like, you can spit standing five feet away from the bucket without even turning your head in the direction. You've been here before. And That's I was right. I mean, he's been tell. every year. So cheers, so, guys. Cheers. Yeah. I'm trying to apply some of the lessons like I was trying to pick up reading from. So I'm, I'm smelling this wine. I have to. I, ha- I, have to I don't ca- know what it is. And I already know I don't like it. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna, we're going to taste it. I have to give the caveat. It has been open for a few days, but you know, surprise. You know, I think people also wine can is a little hardier than people allow, so it doesn't have to be open with and drunk within twenty four hours. So th- this is another thing you talk about is how the sommeliers at these uh, restaurants will often. Um, like kind of scavenge the leftover bottles from like the really expensive, really wealthy guy, like diners who come in and just leave them behind and then like bring them days later to share with people. Yeah. So which suggests that there is a little bit of a half life to them more than people. Like, people yeah. um, especially Americans, I find uh, hyper conscious of how long a bottle of wine has mm-hmm. been open and feel like just by dint of having been open for a few days must therefore be bad. And they'll be like, they'll sort of pour it down the drain without even tasting it. Don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other trick actually is that I found, so as I was researching my book, I became an insufferable friend uh, because I would throw dinner parties and I would tell people I was inviting them over for dinner, but I would actually be inviting them over to replicate many of the scientific literature's seminal studies about wine so i would bring them over and then i would you know do i did like the red white you know the white wine and then the white wine dyed red study on them i did like you know three wines through very different price points and one of them actually had like a 6.99 chilean cabernet and it had been open about a week and it had become delicious like there's (laughs) something about taking a really cheap wine and if you open it up long enough it it gets better. So that's been my. I, I was actually thinking about that this week because it's basically impossible to read your book without something to drink. Like there's just like <laughs> it's absolutely like just you can't be done. And so I've been just kind of nursing this one bottle of red that I got for like ten ninety nine hmm. on the like bargain table at you know wine exchange over down the street. Yeah, and it has gotten significant like significantly less <laughs> astringent and awful over time. And I was like, I wonder. So is there like is, is that actually a thing that sometimes bad wines is like just become a little or like not bad ones like mediocre ones just get a little bit well i think the oxygen can sometimes mellow them out i mean that can help i think who knows the things that may breathe out of it as they've been i I actually don't know exactly scientifically why that happens but i can tell you from my own experience that sometimes i mean i think there's amazing wines that you know especially more expensive wines fine wines that do get worse very quickly as you leave them open oh, they're mean, very delicate especially this, older wines so i am going to show my age now and admit that i was born in 1972 um and a very lovely and bianca will know exactly just how lovely this friend of mine was <laughs> um for my birthday bought me a bottle of 1972 vega sicilia and that was very the nice most, friend. That was a very nice friend. It's an impossible to find vintage. Um, like 1972 in general was like a shit vintage around the world. Um, Spain is the one place where it wasn't a shit vintage, but it was very small quantities. So trying to find this, it's impossible to find. Anyway, we opened this up. At a, we had a great meal at, at Casa Mono. Um, but yeah, that thing transformed over the space of like five minutes. It would mm. change to be different. And for the better you really, or for the worse? Or just it, different? It, it got better and then it got worse. Mm. And it didn't last that long. Yeah. I mean, we were like, oh, we're very happy that we didn't decount this half an hour ago because mm. it would have been. But you never know. Anyway, yeah. that's a whole other question about fine wine. Let's talk very quickly about the op-ed, which you wrote in the New York Times and how it relates to this rather buttery white that you have served us. Hmm. 
Um, Jordan, and well, I mean, let's just say alcoholic. Hmm. Is it that alcoholic? So, okay, I've been trying to. So, wait, let's, before we get to the op ed, so one of the things you said in your book is that when you're like doing the wine swirl thing, there are specific patterns about like the oh, yeah, way. Yeah, we'll look at the legs. Yeah, you can look. So, one of the things you said is like you look for the way the wine falls down the glass. And if it falls in little fingers, that means it probably has a lot of high, it's high alcohol. If it falls in like sheets, it's low alcohol. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at the way this kind of fell down my glass, it looks like it's sheets. So, to me, that's, a, it's not really burning. So, that's right. telling me low alcohol. Right. So, I think you're getting to the second part. So, I think that, you know, it is a little dangerous to trust your eyes too much when it comes to wine. I mean, that's where that infamous study of, Experts getting fooled into the the red wine uh, that was actually a dyed white comes in. But, you know, I think that you're right. So sugar and alcohol can create what you know you describe as fingers. Some people describe them as tears mm-hmm. on the wine. Um, and uh, that is helpful. I actually think you're generally going to be more accurate if you feel for the alcohol in the wine. So I do that. Does Everyone- that mean something besides drinking it? so it can so I actually I was at um, this boot camp for master sommeliers and it was a bunch of aspiring master sommeliers and then this round table of uh, actual master sommeliers and I remember one of them gave the advice that you should hold the glass up and take a sniff of wine like you're ripping a big line of coke and if it makes you if it kind of makes you um like your eyes go to water if it, if it pinches your nose you know those are the alcoholic aromas and the more you get that kind of pinching feeling the higher the alcohol i find it's helpful when i take a sip of wine you actually swallow it and then kind of like exhale like you're um almost like checking your breath and for me i feel how far back i feel it burning right and yeah, so if it's right. like just the back of my throat you think about a tequila shot right you feel it burning all the way down because it has much higher alcohol. Um, so for wine, you have to be able to tell the difference between 10%, 11%, 12%, 12.5%. Um, and so I feel that, you know, how far down? Is it in my throat that it's burning? In which case, you know, more 14. So I'm going to say this is a high alcohol wine. I'm Maybe I'm just like too used to like chugging straight rum these days yeah. to deal with the Trump administration. But like, <laughs> this is, to me, this seemed low. So I don't know. So to be angry. What you, so are, what would you say? You, do you guys want to give a percent? Are I'm going to I'm gonna guess like... Okay, I guess 11. Okay. 11, 12. And I'm going to say 13 and a half. I'm going to say 11.5, 12%. Well, you know what it is. I don't know the alcohol level, though. Okay, so what is it? Let's see Let's see what well, this wine is. Well, first, is. I wanna, so I want to say, I think, you know, for, for people that haven't read the New York Times op-ed, I think yes. it's helpful to provide a little context. So essentially, the story kind of takes as a peg the natural wine movement, right? So right now, there's a big, big movement to drink natural wines. And the idea behind natural wines is there's nothing added, nothing removed. They're organically made. Um, And for a lot of people, that's very confusing because, well, isn't wine just grapes and yeast? What else would it be? What else could you add or could you remove? And um, the answer is... little do you know. (laughs) Apparently 60 different additives. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) so there's about 62 different additives that can legally be added to wine, and you never have to disclose any of them. So most of us don't realize it. I think wine has really enjoyed this halo of greenwashing. And my story basically, you know, and the traditional line is that, you know, these processed wines are no better than processed foods that they should be dismissed, that they are the lowest of the low, they are the scum of the wine world. And so my op-ed was basically saying, first of all, people need to know that these things go into these wines. We should be aware that there are these differences, but also that we shouldn't dismiss these wines outright, that they do have a place, that they can, um, well, first of all, I should know, you know, that they are engineered like Peeps Oreos or you know, new Doritos yeah. flavors. There's never going to be a, a vintage difference. You know, if you buy right. the 2015 or the 20 or 2010, it'll taste exactly the right. same. Right. I mean, they're not looking to express terroir. They're looking to make a wine that's going to please people's palates. So they bring in amateur drinkers and they basically and say, as we discussed in the last wine episode, um, if you do blind tastings and we can not discuss how stupid they are because we did that last time. And if you want to, <laughs> and we're blind tasting right now. So. If you want to find out how stupid they are, just listen to the last wine episode. But like, if you do blind tastings, people really genuinely do prefer cheaper wines to more expensive wines. Mm-hmm. So, and what and what these people are doing is they're basically giving, they're doing blind tastings for a whole bunch of normal people and saying, "What do you like?" And they're giving the people what they like. And give that's the people what they want. Not yeah. so awful. I argue that it's yeah. not so awful. I would say that this. Um, I basically argue that there's a place for these wines that, you know, they can be a gateway for some drinkers to move on from, 
you know, the two buck chuck to, you know, the incredible natural Chenin Blanc from the Loire. Um, and I will say, just as a side note, the reaction has been insane. No now, one liked this, right? That's not true. I, I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, I mean, you're showing your bias. My gosh. <laughs> no, you um, see, I, I, got, I liked it. But yeah, I, I, got, I, but I, I have actually, a lot of friends who hated it. So here's it. the thing. I got so many positive emails and personal messages about it from people. But, you know, the reaction on social media was often much more negative, you know, where people that were real natural wine advocates. I actually had someone threaten me. Um, I had someone <laughs> um, post a I was out at a wine bar. It was a natural wine bar. She took a picture of me. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. Po- unbeknownst to me and posted it on my Facebook wall and said, what are you doing in a natural wine bar right oh my now? Wow. Wait, so I, I have a question. Okay, wait, so wait, wait, wait. About this specifically. Okay. So, so in your article, you kind of talk about like the mad science wines, right? The ones are like carefully engineered to taste of raspberries and maybe some yeah. chocolate because people like chocolate. And then there's the other end, which is like the really nice vintages, the natural wines. At the same time, there are these like 60 different things you can throw into a wine. All right. these, so if you're just looking at, again, like the bargain table at like, you know, your local wine shop and it's got like a bunch of stuff from Spain and, you know, Italy, that's like 12, 13 bucks. What are, I mean, what's the likelihood that that's actually like, quote, like a traditional wine? I mean, how how likely is it that that also has some stuff added in? Is it very likely? Very likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I had I had this conversation last night. <clears throat> I'm from Portland, Oregon. I had a high school reunion with a lot of other Portlanders. And one woman said, you know, well, all these additives, this is why I drink European wines. Nope. And I literally <laughs> <laughs> and I and, and she said, and you know, do you think that's a good idea? And I said, quite honestly, no. I don't I mean the thing is that people just don't talk about. There's no openness. So even, you know, if you're a winemaker, you sell to a distributor who sells to a restaurant or to a wine store. If you're the distributor and you ask this winemaker, you know, are you putting crap into your wines? No, of course not. We would never do that. We believe in the terroir, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, then, if the sommelier or the rest or, you know, whatever, asks the distributor if anything manipulation has gone into these wines, of course, the answer is no. So the problem is there's just no transparency. So people fall back on, I think, these stereotypes or, you know, these ideas of what makes them feel good to drink. But it's really hard to know because you just don't have to disclose it. I all actually right. think. All right. So, you right, ready? So, yeah. so do you want to take any guesses? No, I don't want to take a guess. I'm, oh, oh, cause you, because oh, okay. no, I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> take a guess because that's the, um, the, the the party trick aspect of blind okay. tasting. And there are there are a couple of areas where blind tasting can be useful in terms of like pedagogy and like learning about how different types of grapes and wines taste. But the party trick of like identifying wine from tasting it blind is... I think the idea is like we were just talking about how you identify the alcohol. It's to get you to the party trick. You learn about the wine in order to then like you learn all the details that are interesting and actually useful to then get your as like the party trick is sort of the the uh, educational device. It's Mm -hmm. the pedagogical device to do it. I don't like the party trick. So here's the question. Can you would you can you get take a guess at the continent? I'm gonna guess. I I can't. I'm okay. I, I'm okay. so That's bad. fine. That's fine. Pass, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Felix. Mister 1972 Vega Cecilia. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna. He just say, made a face. By the way, I want to guess New World. I'm gonna I, guess I'm New gonna, World. Chardonnay. I'm gonna say California. Okay. Yeah. Um. Do you, want to take, do you want to take a guess at like is this is this a mad science wine? Is this a natural wine? Is this uh, somewhere in between? No, this is, is this, this is. Uh, I'm gonna say this is a. Uh, on the manufactured end. All right. You want to okay. see it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Felix, I know you love female winemakers. I do. So, this is a Grillo. So, this is oh, it's, from it's Italian. Sicily. Okay. This is from Ariana Occhipinti. Oh, my God. This is my favorite. <laughs> I love Ariana Occhipinti. <laughs> I hate this wine. <laughs> so this Sorry, is from, Ariana. This is from her second label. Um, I love Grillo. It's an incredible wine. I thought this was a cool wine because... Um, it's not expensive. I mean, it's about eighteen dollars a bottle. I don't. I mean, in the grand like scheme it. of things, I don't think it's that expensive. It has been open a couple of days, so you know, I give you a pass on that, Felix. But um, I don't like I, it. I know there's no. And what's oh, the alcohol? Twelve point five percent. So it's right. Between so we were the two right yeah. in the middle. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you know, but as I say, like now, if I'd known, and if you listen to the old episode. If I'd known that this was an Ariana Occupindi, I would have liked it more. I can yeah. tell you that. Of course. I can yeah. guarantee it. And that's it. fine. That's part of the flavor. It's yeah. okay. But I think, you know, for those who don't know Ariana Occupindi, she's young. She's in her 30s. Um, she's, you know, believes very much in terroir. She does use natural methods. I don't know if that's the same for her um, second wine, uh, you know, the sort of 
ma- cheaper um, offering. Uh, it is actually, I think it's a really lovely wine, Felix and I think you would have enjoyed it. it. In horror at his, <laughs> at his error. How have yeah, I gone? No, this is, my palate betrayed me. It's, I mean, to be fair, I, I generally drink her reds, and I have a thing about Sicilian mm. whites. But yes, no, I, I, I feel... You guys have all just heard the inevitable rationalization uh-huh. that no, happens. I, no, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick to my... It's fine. You say, don't have to like it. And say, it. A, I don't like it. And B, I definitely would have liked it more if I'd known what yes, it was. Yes, okay. that's fair. Um, okay, so enough of that. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So I want to move on to the question of wine in restaurants, which is really the core of your book, Bianca. As I attempt to pour this wine with extremely shaky hand. So, so um, Jordan just backhanded Bianca there. I, I wasn't going to say anything, but he did. <laughs> and this is why I am a blogger still. <laughs> so, Bianca, what, what is backhanding? So backhanding is very poor form in restaurants, but it basically um, is when you pour a bottle of wine, so you're showing the back of your hand to the guest. So you should be pouring open-handed, even if it means using a hand you're not as comfortable with or changing the direction, um, but you want to pour so that the palm of your hand is facing the the person. And we we are drinking Jordan's White, which Mm -hmm. we don't know what it is, and we are talking about restaurants which is like backhanding is the only place you ever worry about backhanding is in a restaurant um wine in restaurants is really the core of your book you talk a lot about how to serve wine about the economics of how the restaurant makes lots of money by upselling people and about the sort of delicate dance that sommeliers do in terms of trying to give people the most pleasure at a price that isn't going to shock them while at the same time trying to make lots of money um the thing which I which I don't think you really address in the book but has always been stuck in the back of my head when it comes to wine in restaurants is that they are delicious and I've had many delicious wines in restaurants but for obvious reasons it's much more expensive to buy any to buy any given wine in a restaurant than it would be in a wine store so for those of us who have finite amounts of disposable income and that you know if we spend money here it means less money to spend there does it really make sense to buy good wine in a restaurant at all because it's just so much more expensive that way yes it does make sense okay so it makes sense for a couple of reasons i mean in general the people that i think when people put together a really thoughtful wine list oftentimes the sommeliers the beverage directors are keeping an eye out for wines that you may not be able to buy outside of restaurants. Some wineries actually don't want to sell their wines retail. So, you you know, there's some really fantastic producers that you may have an incredibly diff- difficult time finding outside of a restaurant. By the same token, you can find some really cool vintages. You can find older wines that you might not find out of a restaurant. Um, in some cases, you can actually find... Um, values on wines and restaurants. Just as an example, I will never forget where I was when I was convinced for the first time in my life that an $800 bottle of wine was a bargain. And I was in the cellar at Oriole, the restaurant, um, it's a Michelin star restaurant uh, in Times Square, 30-year-old restaurant. And they have been getting these incredibly rare allocations of Burgundy, of Ikem, of these incredible wines. And they have back vintages of them going back, you know, 20, 30 years. And no one buys them, right? They had this incredible Demande de la Romaine Conti, right, wines. And they've had them in their cellar. They don't really sell them. It's more of the pre-theater crowd or corporate expense account crowd. And so they haven't really raised the prices on these wines. Now, I haven't bought them, but if you're someone that 
buys DRC or buys really expensive wines, you could actually find them for less at the restaurant than you would be able to buy them if you could even yeah. buy them and, at auction. And this is and this is the one case. This is one very what you might call edge case. Um, is that you find this in Bandol in France, for instance, quite a lot, but also in Paris. Restaurants which have been around for decades have sellers with wines which have been in there for decades, which are very old. In general, at retail, it's hard to find old wines. Um, so if you're buying like 20, 30-year-old wines, um, often if often the restaurant hasn't been increasing the price of the wines on the list in accordance with the amount that the value of those wines has been going up. But put those kind of crazy edge cases to one side. If I'm buying a $25 wine retail, which is going to cost me $95 in a restaurant. Come on. How different is that from paying $14 for a salad? I mean, you went out to eat at a restaurant because you want to know the perspective that the chef has, that this restaurant has, because you're there for the experience. And I do think that you know, people oftentimes look at a wine list and they say, oh, my gosh, you know, well, how much could that be if I buy it at retail? Right. And the answer is, you know, if you could buy it, maybe like half or a third is expensive. Right. Um, but you're ignoring the fact that, again, liquid helps keep restaurants liquid. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, you are it's not that you're just overpaying. I mean, you're helping to support. You're, you're supporting the restaurant. A restaurant and, and these people that work in it. And, you know, again, when you, I think people do, and I have done this before, I think before I wrote this book, roll their eyes at a $14 salad. And the point is that you're not paying $14 for the leaves. You're also not paying, you know, $40 for the bottle of, you know, Grito. Um you're paying for the rent, the utilities, the you know the the laundry service that does this, and the in insurance. Fact, and in fact, if you don't order wine, you are kind of freeloading. On yeah, the I mean a little. Not, I would probably say, depends on the restaurant. Yeah, right? it depends on the restaurant. But I do think that um, restaurants prefer it when you order wine. <laughs> so so, I, so I, quickly, I, I, let's I, let's I just a, talk about this wine. Okay, and yeah. Then I have a follow up question related yeah. to Felix's. So. so so this this I have to say I definitely prefer to to Bianca's mm. white to the Occupinti. I am shocked. I I bought this assuming Felix was going to despise mm. it. I like <laughs> it. It's 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 simple. It's quaffable. It's not. It it doesn't have quite the amount of acid that I l- normally like, but it's a perfectly delicious wine. Yeah. I think it's a nice one. I mean, would... so I bought this partly because I was curious what you thought it would smell like. Mm. I'm curious what you. Uh, I'll it doesn't tell you... smell of much. I mean, okay, yeah, it's, I it's not a sophisticated it wine. It yeah. doesn't have a huge amount of complexity. Um, it's, yeah. it's definitely a kind of wine which I'd be happy to drink on a porch in the summer. I, I was about yes, to... I, was, I was thinking of a picnic. Yeah. It would be well, lovely. But, you know, that's not a bad thing. No. So that's also... But you said picnic wine is technically used as sort of like a sort of backhanded, like, yeah. mean thing yeah. that sommeliers say. Right. But I actually don't think yeah. it is a mean I, thing I love say. picnics, personally, and yeah. want wine for them. But... Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so should we reveal what it is? Yeah, let's or, check it out. So, yeah. so wait, 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 wait oh, yeah. since, oh. since the oh, yeah. what professional sommelier here, like... Uh, Bianca's going to tell us what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think, you know, it's funny. I have to confess because I can see the bottle, Duh. right? And so, like, I'm a little yeah. biased and I was like, well, maybe it's a Riesling. But smelling it, I don't get... I, I think don't it's think like, it's Riesling. Yeah, I don't think it's Riesling. I mean, it's... um, I think it has, like, a really nice um, sort of white floral nose. It has some melon. It has some peach. Um, it is... This is going to sound dumb, but, like, actually a little bit of, like, a... Uh, kind of plasticky secondary note to it. I mean, I think it's, you know, it could be, I think of it as like a more. You're oh, not God. answering the question. No, no, no. She's actually, no, this is. This <laughs> is doing, I'll, no, I'll but, couple, but this is, this is also the, 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 the party trick, right? We're doing the party well, no, trick. Well, no, so this is. And I, part of the party trick is by, is to go through all of this, like, what am I smelling? What am I tasting? Before you come up to the, what actually is so, the wine. So should I reveal, do you want to give it a, a guess or should I just reveal? Look, I think it's an old world wine. I think it's, um, I want it to be like an aromatic grape file, like a Gewurztraminer or like a Viognier or something. So um, it is in fact a, so, okay. It is a Viognier that mm. I got from, that's, um, Let's open from, it up. I'm going to open yeah, it up here. Not a particularly expensive one, but mm. it's from... Oh, it's Neil Rosenthal. I just saw the back of it. What's no. the, the front of it is... Yeah, so it's I from it's from, from Chavonnet, which is kind of near... So your book talks mentions like... Not the, to be confused with Chavonnet. This, this, this is not Chavonnet, it's Chavonnet. Chavonnet. So <laughs> your book mentions Viognet like four or five times, yeah. and that's part of the reason I bought it. So 
I have, I've always sort of had a soft spot for that grape for reasons we don't have to get into, but I, you know, I've, I've like been to Vienne where they, you know, near where Contrio comes from. And one of the characters in your book described it as smelling plasticky, like rubber mm-hmm. chicken. And that was the word you just used. Yeah. And so I was like, <laughs> is that something that people will actually get from it? Because to me, I'm like, oh, it smells like honeysuckle. That's like mm-hmm. what Viognier smells like to me. Like, that's one of the reasons I've always liked the wine. It's like literally sitting on a porch with flowers. Yeah. And, but it's like someone who smells it and like, I guess has the training gets like literally rubber chicken or uh, I forget. So, the, so one freshly of, molded dildo. Yeah, I think yeah, 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 it was the other one. Yeah. And so I was, also, I mean, there is, I didn't say this, but like, you know, the other get that you often get is that like creme fraiche note. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to the restaurants just for a minute. And the line from your book, which really stuck with me, which is where you said you can't make margin on shit people don't know. Yep. And also that if people are going to be ordering a Viognier in a restaurant, they want to, they're, they're going to expect a Viognier. That you need a certain amount of kind of typicity in mm-hmm. a typical restaurant list. And that if you put weird wines, which don't taste like you think they're going to taste like, that's just like a massive sort of eek, eek, danger Will Robinson kind of thing going <laughs> on there. And you want to be very careful about putting those on lists. And so when you say that... Well, those become a trigger wine, right? Right. So you go from the sort of hidden... I mean, those become wines that take some explaining that need a little bit of a footnote, right? Right. To say... Just FYI, this was aged in amphora, right? And right. there's something off about it or whatever. Something strange. And how much did this cost? Like 25 bucks. Where okay. Contreal easily yeah. cost you like 60 You're treating us so nicely. <laughs> well, I figured I'd still have most of it left. <laughs> so, this is, so this is a good wine. But this is the, the number one question. And I've been asking a few people since I knew you were coming on this show. I've been asking a few of my friends, like, when you go out to a restaurant which serves wine, um, you know, what percentage of the time, like the last hundred times you went to a restaurant which served wine, how out of those hundred times, like how many times did you actually encounter a sommelier? And the general answer is somewhere between like five and ten. Hmm. Um, how about you, Bianca? I mean, how often do you encounter a sommelier when you go out to <laughs> eat? That's a really good question. I think... Um if I'm going out to eat, I tend to either go someplace that's never going to have a sommelier or someplace that will have a sommelier. Like if I'm going to eat something in the middle, I'll just make it at home. Um, but I think that the problem is that even if there isn't a technical sommelier position, a lot of really great restaurants have fantastic servers that are trained as if they're sommeliers. Okay, so that was one of the questions I wanted to ask because like you go through all of this like unbelievable like trials of fire in this book to become a sommelier and there's a whole bunch of servers across the nation who haven't done that. And so does that make them worse? Should I actually listen to my server who says, yeah, that's a dry, fruity red or something? Is that going to be helpful to me? So honestly, I've had, um, now that I know more about wine, I'm a little bit more discerning in whose advice I take. I think people feel this, they feel like they look at the wine list and it's a multiple choice test and they have a hundred options and they have to choose the right one without any help whatsoever. And I was really struck by the more that someone knows about wine, the less specific they often are about their choice, right? So they'll go and just say, you know, if there is a sommelier at the restaurant, they, you know, the guest closes the the book and the wine list and basically says, here's my budget and this is the style of wine that I like. And that could be as specific right. as saying I had a great, great you know, Viognier from Cuilohon, like it was great, um, or just saying I tend to like wines from New Zealand. But and they sim- direct okay. you to that. Uh, and I, I just, uh, yeah. I'll just say that, like, so I... For example, I was out to eat the other night and I was trying to find a dry uh, Riesling to order. And in general, my first instinct these days is really to put my trust in the sommelier. And Mm -hmm. then the guy started talking about, well, this one's really fruity. It has a lot of ripeness. And I was like, but is there residual sugar? He's like, well, there's a lot of fruit. And I was like, well, you're not answering the question. And and immediately I quite honestly lost trust in him (laughs) because, you know, I felt like we were talking past each other. And so I just, you know, went off of my own knowledge. I I find that. Often, and this is increasingly happening with me, is I'll find myself at a restaurant which has a very short wine list, which has obviously been chosen with great care. And I'm like, I have a feeling that this is a place where I shouldn't be able to go wrong no matter how hard I try. And that's the kind of restaurant which I really like. Mm. And in your book, you talk about... uh, 
diner at Oriole who orders a Sauvignon Blanc, which is more expensive and less good than something else on the list. I'm like, why is that on the list right. in that case? I think going back to your point about why would you order wine at a restaurant when it's so marked up? You know, you're going for that curation. I mean, ideally, you can put yourself in someone's hands and they're going to blow your mind right. and they're going to take you somewhere incredible. I mean, even working so at Terroir, is... like I had such a blast. Yeah. Even if someone's going to spend, you know, $10 on a happy hour wine, I wanted that wine to raise some serious questions that they'd never asked themselves before about where wine came from and how they experienced taste and smell. And I think that a good sommelier can do that. And you're going to rely on them. So that's why it's okay. silly for people no, not. No, no, but going no, back you to your question, yeah. mm-hmm. like I think that, you know, you can't, right? You want someone to trust you, like to come back. Um, but at the same time, there is an effort to get the most money possible out of a guest. I mean, hence this incredibly complex system of really keeping notes on guests. I mean, when I was doing an apprenticeship at Morea, which is this two Michelin star restaurant, it's um, very expensive. You know, they only begin to get excited about a bottle of wine that's around $300 a pop. And they, you know, keep tabs. So you might, you come into the restaurant, they print a little um, soigne, a little ticket when you sit down, and it informs the staff of basically your level. You could be a wine PX, which is a personne extraordinaire, which means you spend a lot of money on wine. You could be a wine PPX, which is personne particulièrement extraordinaire, meaning you spend a whole shit ton of money on wine. <laughs> and you just, could be like, a wine can I just, I want to jump like, in here, yeah, yeah, and you yeah. say, like, early in the book, that you met one sommelier who sold, now, I can't quite believe this is true, but I think this is what you say in the book, $3 million of wine to one person? She said that he came in because the first time I talked to her, I was like, wow, like $3 million a year is an insane amount to sell of wine for a restaurant. And I asked her about it later and she was like, oh, no, no, we sold that to one client. And he apparently would come in on this crazy corporate I don't card. I mean, ran, I think he ran his own business and just would wine and dine to no end. And the man apparently had very expensive tastes. But it just $3 I mean, million. Dollars, one person spending $3 million in one restaurant in one year. What she told me, which is just mind blowing, <laughs> but that's that's the one percent. Jordan's favorite wine, wine article in, in in recent months is the <laughs> is the headline in the Wall Street Journal of is it thirty thousand dollars too much to spend on wine? To which I respond per month, per month, per month <laughs> too much to spend on wine. To which I responded by clipping the headline and tweeting, "I want to raise this writer's taxes personally." <laughs> <laughs> um, but we need to move on. Yeah. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So I want to move a little bit out of the restaurant and into just drinking. Um, And as I you know, said in the last wine episode, drinking and wine especially is about storytelling. And a large part of the story is about this thing called terroir, which is just this untranslatable word, just meaning that the spirit of the place. The somewhereness. The somewhereness. And I feel like that's, that, that's a wonderful thing for people who have ever traveled in wine country. They kind of understand the idea that this wine comes from somewhere. So I brought a wine which comes from somewhere which we which we can drink and Bianca being Oh, we don't have Oh, I see. We have Well, we have another one that we should drink that's from from somewhere else. Yes. Yeah, but we're going to drink gonna, my yeah. wine first because for reasons which will become obvious and then we can try and take a little guess as to where it comes from and then we will drink Bianca's wine and see where it comes from somewhere else. I think I've had your wine though. 
So what do you think it is? I don't know, is? but I'm biased. See, this is a problem. So ideally when you're um, blind tasting, we would cover up, we would decant, right? So you're actually not yeah. actually ever seeing yeah, my, bottle. my bottle kind of gives it away on a, on a bunch of different levels. Um, this is also, I oh. brought this because this is Slate. Like and this is a favorite wine of Slate chairman Jacob Weisberg. And I might actually really? try and track him down and, and give him a glass okay. of it so at some point. This is like one of those, like, I for me, like, where color definitely influences what I think I'm tasting. Because mm. I looked at it immediately. And I was like, oh, it's cranberry colored. It's very bright red. Mm. Like, the light cuts right through it. And I'm like, and I taste it. I'm like, oh, yeah, cranberries. Like, that's just like, <laughs> like cranberries with, like, something, like, kind of a little bit, like, harsher and, like, a little bit more, like, almost smoky. But here's, it, but. if I were, but if, if, if this is the one, and I'm trying to separate the fact that I'm a little biased by what I think yeah. it is. Um, I think you'd be totally right because in general, cranberry is like a go-to for red wines, associative of wines from Italy. Okay, and so it's. Um, but I think you're also being biased by the color. Yeah, no, but you're I a think, Trump. Yeah, I know. I think I, I am. Like, I, I'm like, I'm I like, think Bianca too obvious. I think Bianca's exactly right. What 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 is the wine, Bianca? So this is, I think, um, this is just what I think it is based on my memory. Yeah. Um, not really based on the tasting notes, is um, actually from a natural wine producer, I believe in Sicily. Absolutely right. Oh, thank you. Well, but that was not like a blind tasting prowess. That's just, yeah, I yeah. remember drinking it. I love this wine and it does have a lot of smokiness. And actually, his, I remember drinking it over a course of dinner and it gets even more barbecue His really name delicious. is? I don't remember. His name is Frank Cornelison. Oh, of course. Oh, I should have known that, yeah. Um, he he's not far from uh, um, Occupinti, actually. Mm. They're they're both Sicilian. Great minds think alike. We're just really on the. <laughs> we both are <laughs> literally high fiving over we, their wine choices. We right both now. brought as I watch natural <laughs> wines from Sicily. But You're I have, have to drink the spit bucket afterwards. But I have to say, I'm going to come some out kind of hazing thing. Like, sorry, I've never had a 1972 whatever drink the spit bucket. <laughs> <laughs> this is my fate on the show after um, three years. But, but okay, am I not? Am I not correct in saying, Bianca, that my my natural Sicilian wine is better than your natural Sicilian wine. Because this is a question I wanted to get to, which is the whole question of like, does it make sense to say one wine is better than another? I don't I don't think it makes sense to say one wine is better than the other. Or that in general that there's a difference between good wine and bad wine. In general that you are right. Is that what you're trying to get? I mean, it's, I mean no, but I think um in general that one wine is better than another, based on what definition? I mean, I will say that you know, one of the questions that I was very curious about in my book was exactly this question of wine quality. And I spent all of this time studying, sacrificing mouthwash and teeth brushing in order to understand how to tell the difference between types of wines. And I got very frustrated at one point because I, re I realized that I could tell the difference between, you know, Chenin Blanc and Viognier and Gewurztraminer or whatever, but that I couldn't I didn't really know what I was judging them by. You know, what was a good Chenin Blanc? What was what was the definition? And so I did go in search of this question of what defines a good wine. And I really feel like I looked at it from every angle, economic, looking at the chemistry of the wine, looking at wine critics and what they say. And what I found is that there really wasn't disagree there wasn't any agreement on what made for a good wine. There was disagreement on what made for a bad wine. But then even when I looked at that, and that's what led me to these manipulated wines to looking at this process by which, you know, wines are really engineered from the consumer backwards and really engineered. Um, these are the wines that people typically say are bad, right? That every connoisseur rolls their eyes at, that prompts them to make threats against someone that defends them. And, you know, bad wines are wines that taste good to large numbers of people. And that I doesn't just, mean well, that they're not bad. Well, so well, wait, can, okay, so, wait, can I tell you how I'm like, analogizing this for myself as like kind of the, the civilian here? Like yeah. the very, it, you know, to me, it's just a lot like music, right? Like, you see, the, see you know, this is, is I really wanted to bring in this music and analogy because okay. well, wait, I, well, I'm okay. the one who did it. So I'm going right. to give it and then you're, okay. I'm going to give the analogy and then you can elaborate okay. on it. Okay. I you can love, be my I would love to listen to us at the end of this episode versus the beginning and the sheer volume after four yes. glasses of wine. Like, Let me tell you about Katy Perry. No, so, right, like, you know, I... To, you know, one of my all-time favorite albums is like Ascension by John Coltrane, which is just like a free, it's like a free jazz like monument. And if you haven't listened to, if you haven't kind of prepped yourself to listen to that kind of thing, most people are not going to put that album on and hear like double drums and saxophone scronking and be like, whoa, this is great. But if you're like a, if you're a fan, you've spent a lot of time on it, it's going to move you and it's really interesting. Um, 
you know, I also like fucking Call Me Maybe and all that. Like, I think that's a great pop song. That is, you know, some it's, you know, it still moves me in some way. And frankly, I also like Kesha, which is not great. But, <laughs> like, but like in some way, like it's still you feel something. And so it's like what you get out of it. And so, if a cheap okay. thing, if you get something out of the cheap thing, it's okay. It's no, but, it's but, about but what see, you can... this is this is where I completely disagree with you. Um, Call Me Maybe is a close to perfect pop song. You will find almost yeah, no one. Wait, wait, but pop. let me. But that's exactly what I was going to. You know, I was going to say. You will find almost no one. Everyone agrees that Call Me Maybe is incredibly manufactured. It is certainly the musical equivalent of you know the the very manufactured wines that we were talking about earlier. But you will find very few music lovers who don't appreciate it for the fact that it is this incredibly well crafted really beautiful perfect pop song that there, there will be very few people anymore who sort of say well i only listen to beethoven and i think call me maybe is utter shit you know that's that you don't find that anymore what you do find is a lot of people who say i only drink romane conte and i think that tubak chuck is utter shit like that happens a lot more and call me maybe like really works on its own you know own terms on its own terms perfectly it's it's a great construction and what i don't think exists is the equivalent of call me maybe in the in, in the wine world where you can say this is the absolutely perfect manufactured you know critter wine really because i think like there is like good picnic wine okay, out so, there so, yeah. so that's the question like call me maybe is a better pop song than most other pop songs can you say that like one manufactured wine is a better wine than all other manufactured wines I mean, look, I don't think I have drunk enough manufactured wines to have given a thorough catalog of all of them and their relative points. You know, but I think that, look, where I disagree is that there's, as it is right now, I think the wine world dismisses the call me maybes, the manufactured wines outright. And it refuses to consider that there could be something redeemable about them. Like there's not even a willingness to consider that they have a place, that they're just they're so far off the reservation that they just people shouldn't drink them. They shouldn't be they shouldn't exist. And so I just I don't I guess I also I don't think that that I don't think your analogy is a perfect analogy either. All right. So let's move on to the final wine of the show. As our ability to analogize breaks down with <laughs> each additional glass. We, we have one Sorry. last wine. This one's another red. Which yes. comes courtesy of Bianca Bosca. Indeed. Oh, sorry. Well, this one is much darker. Yep. I'm pouring you open hand. Yes. So. I, I'm a lover of lighter reds. This is my personal taste in reds, at least right now. And often you find this, by the way, in wine drinking circles, is that people start off with their liking the heavy stuff and then as they learn yeah. more and about like wine they, that's smoother they less tannin less yeah. bitter that's the same in beer it's almost like people and like and whole sweeter a little whole, residual sugar yeah the whole Sorry. beer world started off going crazy for hops and now has moved Ooh. on to like light sours and things like that um so the the question i have for bianca while we're drinking her wine is what is the best way to drink wine and specifically you have as you mentioned this wonderful scene in your book where you go to this like um, Burgundian Bacchanal, where people are drinking trillions of dollars of Latash and getting utterly shit-faced. And I have had a couple of wine parties a little bit like that, where people where people are just like, I'm just going to open my cellar and drink unbelievably great wine. And Thanks for inviting get... me. I appreciate and, that. Like, <laughs> <why> and, <laughs> I've known you all this time, Felix. And, and I feel like, in a weird way, in a counterintuitive way, that's like the best way to drink wine. Most of us, and I, I think maybe it's some kind of Puritan upbringing, that ha we have this feeling like the best way to drink wine is completely sober so you can totally um, appreciate all of the subtleties and the everything and you, you spit things and you make sure that... And then there's the complete opposite, which let's just get drunk and drink right. awesome <laughs> juice. And the things which stick with you for a long time i mean yeah some of them are the you know great sober meals over your anniversary dinner where you had one spectacular bottle of lafitte right. or whatever but a lot of them are the crazy wonderful drunk parties is it bad to drink great wine when you're drunk 
Is it great? Is it bad to drink great wine in a bad way? When you're, no, when or you're like in just, a bad way. Oh yeah, wait, wait, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, as I described, like La Pole was this is this Burgundy Bacchanal, and it was ostensibly a celebration of the wines of Burgundy by the people that love it most. I mean, you have to know someone who knows someone to get even a ticket to this thing. And by the way, the the gala dinner is $1,500 a person and it's BYOB and you're expected to bring treasures from your cellar. And on the other hand, it was a total Burgundy genocide. They just (laughs) dumped these amazing wines, barely paused to savor them, it was just crazy how much great wine and just one got dwarfed by the next. But I think that it was. First of all, it was this incredible hedonistic experience, and I do describe it as being like an orgy because everyone was there to do something else to someone else's body in a way that elicited <laughs> pleasure. And, you know, I watched We're back to that 1959 Lafitte again in Mike XXL. <laughs> and then, you know. Grown men hand feeding each other cheese. You know, there was a truffle Santa Claus with this bag of mushrooms who just shaved. I mean, I, I had a guy come up to me and never spoke to him in my life, never even seen him before in my life, offer me his bottle of wine and just ask me, can you have an orgasm standing up? And I will say that, you know, on the one hand, it was just this excess. And on the other, it was this kind of no holds barred celebration of this physical experience. And, so, and I also think that the wine, just to go back yeah. to your question, I mean, we are, and you talked about this in, you know, wine episode number one, but we are so primed in those surroundings to enjoy the wine more, right? Because it is this right. special thing. It is rare. You know, we paid $1,500 even to get in the door and we're lucky to be here. So that is how, you know, that makes the wine taste good. And by the way, La Polay was a place where Rudy Carniwan, who's one of the biggest wine forgers, was the first person to be convicted of wine fraud in the U.S. And by the way, watch the documentary the about him on, on Netflix. It's awesome. That's great. But he passed off a lot of his fakes at La Polay. And I think that you know, some people would roll their eyes and say, well, it's just a sign that, you know, wine experts don't know anything. They'll drink whatever. But, you know, you are. It is just part of the experience. And so, you know, that is sure. Felix, you have our permission to get rip roaringly drunk and drink however many bottles of Vegas Cecilia you want. Thank you. And I, I will I will totally take you up on that. And um, if you do that in a restaurant, I can say from personal painful experience, it can get extremely expensive, especially if George at Wild Air is your the person mm. drink, bringing wine to you. Mm. But um, but it's worth it. And it's lots of fun. And don't worry about being drunk when you're drinking fine wine. I feel like have this we is a good just lesson. gone? Have we just managed? I I, I want to trace the arc of this show. We've gone from Felix arguing that it's not worth it to buy expensive wine at restaurants. I to, argue to, that. to Felix arguing you should actually only buy drink great wine. Felix while advice is just in. get really drunk and then you won't care how much you spend on wine. Shower yourself no. in money. Um, so <laughs> Jordan, I, I have to. I just want to come back here. I was genuinely yeah. asking the question of whether it okay. makes sense to buy expensive wine in restaurants because um, I think it's an interesting question. Okay. And I drink expensive wines at home. I drink them in restaurants. I drink cheap wines at home. I, there's no such thing as a cheap wine in a restaurant, really. You're always going to be spending at least no. 30 or $40 when you're buying a wine in a restaurant. So, but I, I think, yeah. Well, I think though, to answer your question about you know just enjoying a glass, I do think... You can go the Felix way and you can get really drunk and spend a lot of money on wine. Or you can also, I do think but a lot it, of like, people. No more than once a year because it gets like <laughs> unaffordable otherwise. <laughs> but I do think that a lot of people don't, they assume that their wine education starts at a glass of wine. And also that it ends there, that anything that you learn about wine is only applicable to wine. And I would say two things. First, if you want to get more out of wine, and Jordan, I don't know how much you drink, um, but like in general, you know, a big part of the pleasure is the smell. And I yeah. think a lot of us never actually learn how to identify smells, how to put names on them. Hence this idea that it's crazy to think about like plastic and a viognier. Mm-hmm. And so I would suggest that, you know, if you want to learn more about wine, that people just start by smelling everything and trying to either describe it in words and or just say the name. So, you know, smell this plastic garbage can that we have on here and you know try and internalize the smell of plastic smell like the parsley when you're cooking at night um and i just think that, i don't know i found that the things i don't know about you felix but like the things that i have learned about wine have made me enjoy so many other things so much more 
So, okay, we let's, have to, let's we have to talk about what this is. We're yeah, what is talk it? about what this wine is. What is it, Jordan? What I, do you think of it? I have no idea. I'm having a little bit of trouble with it. It's like I'm feeling trouble with what? What do you mean? I feel like I'm I'm drinking like a mocha or something mm. at Starbucks. Like there's like a lot of like chocolate powder or something like coming at me, and I don't know if this is good wine or bad wine, quote unquote, or like what it is. But it's just like it's not. It's I I don't know how far into a bottle this I could get. Mm. Felix. I don't love it. I don't have the same negative reaction there as I did to the Occupindi, weirdly enough. Um, if you served this to me at a restaurant, I would take a sip and go, that's that's nice. You're fine. You can pour that bottle. Mm. It's not off. It's not off. Yeah, there's no, there's no <laughs> yeah. flaws. Yeah. There's no, there's no flaws. Um, and I would drink it at the restaurant and I would never think about it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's one of the, it's it's like an accompaniment to food, but I don't. I'm not getting any beauty or sophistication or complexity. So I, I think I'm eating cocoa pebbles, and you're like totally forgettable. <laughs> this, is, this is this is interesting. The All gap right, so in our... Bianca, what is it? So this wine, I'm taking off our. Oh, I, I really like put it on here. So this wine is Sledgehammer. Oh my god, that's so... Sledgehammer. Oh, so this is okay. So <laughs> this is a wine. For this bros. is the wine. Is this okay? So I have this theory. Yeah. Which bros want chocolate. I, um, which I don't really 100% believe, but I believe for the purposes of this podcast, that um, California Pinot is just an inherent oxymoron, that uh, no one in California should grow Pinot Noir. That's not where Pinot Noir belongs. And have, so, there's, by the way, many emails that have been exchanged about this already. <laughs> one of them, my, my response to this is, fuck y'all, I like Pinot, Cali <laughs> Pinot. So, so that, it would thing, never but, in a million years have occurred to me that this would be a, a Pinot Noir because no, it doesn't no, taste no, 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 like no, It doesn't burgundy. taste like Pinot Noir. It, yeah. Not in any way does it taste like Pinot Noir. It says Pinot, so just for, for people that can't see it, it says Pinot Noir in big letters on the label. But I brought Sledgehammer... I, f- I find this wine fascinating. So this is a wine that was made by Treasury, which is the company that I write about in my op-ed and in my book that does this sort of consumer group designed wine. Interesting. And Sledgehammer was really designed to be a wine for bros. The actual <laughs> motto for the wine, and I don't think I'm making this, maybe I'm getting the words wrong, like in the wrong order, but it is, and you can only grunt it, so excuse me. Wait, uh, can I grunt this in full grunt? This is This is what the wine label says. Yeah. With a name like Sledgehammer, <laughs> we have an ethical obligation to deliver big, bold, red wines. This Pinot Noir is no exception. This is how Bigger Felix was. And darker than the other options, it's the only Pinot Noir worthy of the name Sledgehammer. Now I know how Felix would <laughs> announce how he would sound doing the trailer of like a. <laughs> Like a Fast and Furious yeah. sequel. Like, Which is ridiculous. Yeah. You know? the, like, the who name... in their right mind would try and make a Pinot Noir big and bold and sledgehammer? That makes no sense. It's the wrong grape for that. Right. But, you know, look, it just the point is to say Pinot Noir on the label. It doesn't taste anything like what you think of a Pinot Noir. It's, you know, it's, I would say we don't know because you can't you, you don't have to disclose it. But I would guess there's some mega purple in here, something to fill it out, to give it this deep, dark, rich color. It doesn't look like Pinot Noir. Um you know, it's a $9 bottle of wine, um, but the a- the actual motto is meat, wine, good. <laughs> <laughs> and we just have to beat our chest for a little while after we say that. It tastes like a brownie. <laughs> yeah, but it does. And so I think... Um, but it's also, I mean, I have to say, given yeah. given the branding and the labels, yeah. like I have had, you know, vintage Bordeaux, which is bigger and bolder than this. Like, this isn't right. that much of a sledgehammer, well, so to be honest. Thing. I bet the thing is that they want, the branding is for the burr who thinks he wants a big, bold wine, but in fact may not be mm. ready for, like, something huge and, like, super tannic, tannic or whatever. Yeah. But there's and a so limit, instead yeah. they, want, they want, you know, cereal milk. There's a, limit to how, <laughs> yeah. there's a limit to how big and bold a Pinot Noir is ever going to be. Right? Sure, right. Yeah. right. I mean, like, if you want an Amarani or a Zinfandel or something, you, or a Putti Syrah, you can do that. It just makes no sense to me if you want Except a Putti Syrah, why you'd buy a Pinot the Noir. The bro they're selling this to knows what a Pinot Noir is. That's, like, that's the key well, maybe, here. Maybe, yeah, maybe. It's like they, they are I mean, aware. this is the Kesha of yeah. mine. So, yeah, yeah I mean, so this this is not one of my favorites of her songs. This is minor Kesha, <laughs> but I'm sure. But it's also weirdly, I mean, you know, if you ask any wine snob, the idea that there would be a sledgehammer Pinot Noir 
is just such an oxymoron that like that would be their platonic ideal of a dreadful wine. Right. And it's not undrinkable. I have had right. many wines which are much worse than this. Right. So have you had wine? But I bet you've had wines that are quote unquote good wines that are worse than this. Yes, I've had a four hundred dollar Araujo from California, which was worse than this. Mm-hmm. You know, like a really big, expensive California Cabernet, which just tasted like cough syrup. And mm. I'm like, I cannot drink this. I cannot yeah. get it down my throat. But I just, I mean, look, I think it. I, ju- I think that there is someone that may drink this over, I don't know, maybe even if they're drinking it over like Smirnoff or Bud Light, maybe they wouldn't have bought this bottle to begin with. Yeah, I think definitely. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. So so <laughs> it turns out that there is a purpose for growing Pinot Noir in California, and that's to create sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which, I'll send you home with this wine. You can enjoy it over the weekend. I'll, I'll, I'll drink it over the weekend. The and Slate offices it. will descend on it. Otherwise, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so, someone in Slate will be will find their way of, of drinking this. Um, I think that's all we have time for this week. Bianco's back onto the Cornelison because, you know, I have to pat myself on the back here and say I did bring the best wine. Um, <laughs> um, that's the end of the... Uh, wine podcast i think we should end with like an impromptu numbers round Mm. um bianca when when you go to a restaurant and you're looking at a wine list you don't have a huge amount of information you can see the the region and the what vintage and the number the only number there apart from the vintage is the price tell me what information you get from the price and tell me to what degree you should start thinking that if it's more expensive, that makes it more desirable in some way. When I'm looking at a wine list, I'd say there's a few tiers that I divide it up into. And so if the wine, you're right, it's really rare that we're going to see a wine that's 30 or $40 on the list. So if I see a wine, at least in a, a nicer restaurant. I should preface this by, by saying that in general, the markup in a restaurant is you're paying about three times what they paid for the bottle of wine. So if I see a wine that's about you know, $50 a bottle or $60 a bottle, I'm not expecting a whole lot. It could be really good. It could, could be from some unpopular region. You can find a lot of great hidden gems and that can, way. And can I, by the way, yeah. shout out to Bianca Bosca, who early on in her book, name drops Mondas Noir from the Savoie <laughs> which is, is her example of like this obscure region where you can find great values which is totally true and like my favorite wine oh it's is delicious Mondes it's wine, amazing no, noir from although the now it no longer feels obscure Wait, I drink that, those uh, wines a lot Wait, and they're delicious you, uh, mango Savoie hipster is that <laughs> what I'm hearing yeah yeah Bianca was drinking Mondas Noir before it was cool <laughs> I couldn't even pronounce it right I'm, I'm like I wasn't person, gonna correct you I'm listening to Kesha at the mall in yeah. Minneapolis you're like the one listening to you can't hear Mondas Noir over the Kesha at the mall no but I think Look, I would just say one quick piece of advice for people. If you're looking at a buy-the-glass list and you don't know anything about wine, don't go automatically for the gimme wines. The gimme wines are the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, the California Cabernet, the California Pinot, the things everyone's heard of. And they are there because people say, give it to me. I don't care how much it costs. And if you order a gimme wine, you will pay a gimme tax. So in general, even if it's not the cheapest thing, I think you get a better value wine for something that's a little off the beaten track that you've never heard of from a place you can't pronounce. That being said, Felix, I think it's a great question. So I think that if I was just looking at the numbers on the list, um, wines that are under, you know, $50, $60, I mean, I know that I'm going to be paying a higher markup, but not necessarily a bad quality wine, but probably not the best wine. Um, if it's something between, let's say, 60 and 150 to me, those are the wines that have something special about them. But then above 150, to me, it starts being the, these are the brand name wines. Either they're super, either they're these cult classics that are made in very small quantities, or they're just the kind of big name crowd pleaser, brand name whatevers, right? I mean, Domaine de la Romana Conti is not going to be um, under, you know, I mean, it's going to be probably four figures. Um, but then I'm going to be ordering a wine that isn't just delicious, but is, you know, I'm paying for the reputation. I'm paying for the brand. I'm paying for the scarcity. So I, I 
keep it under there. <laughs> and, and so, so basically, what you're saying is that in a restaurant, the sweet spot is between like fifty and one fifty, which I guess means that in a wine store, the sweet spot would be between what, like twenty and fifty. Yeah, maybe a little more, but I think you maybe could, between between twenty and eighty. Yeah, I think the thing is, you can drink really, really great wine for maybe twenty dollars a bottle. It's not going to come from Burgundy, right? I mean, it's not going to come from these regions. Uh, I should have bought my twenty dollar Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you actually have a great twenty dollar? I would love to know what that is. <laughs> you just shot up. <laughs> no, I don't. I have, I have I have a great twenty dollar Beaujolais, which is not actually a Burgundy, but it's sure, that's enough. that's fair. No, 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 but that still counts. No, but I just I think the point is that. It's not that a $600 bottle of wine is not 10 times better than a $60 bottle of wine. It may be 10 times more rare. It may be 10 times more famous. It may be 10 times snobbier in some way. Um, but then it's not just about the taste. It's about the composite experience of that wine, right? It's about the label. It's about what you paid for. It. And those things do inform the flavor. Okay. So that's it. That That's the end of our impromptu numbers round. Bianca? Thank you so much for coming on to Slate Money. It was thank awesome. You. Zach, thank you for somehow managing to edit this into a semblance of coherence. And edit it, out the slurring. And to edit out the slurring. If I sound ridiculously drunk, it's because I am, because we've been drinking wine the entire time. <laughs> Next week, we will be back with a slightly more sober edition of Slate Money, but it will still be good. Um, in the meantime, write to us. Our email is slatemoney at slate.com. And many thanks to Steve Lichtai, June Thomas, Andy Bowers, and all of the other producers around these parts. Um, the Panoply Network is at Panoply FM, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Electric boy, you love. The sun is coming up. 